Hello, and welcome to the Deep Overstock Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, ZB Wagman, and this week we have a special episode celebrating the release of Deep Overstock Issue 11, Animals. For this first zoological episode, we will be focusing on our scaly friends, fish, amphibians, and reptiles. And just like those animals, this episode will be a bit amphibious, featuring both poetry and prose. A swimmingly good way to begin, if you ask me. We'll hear work by Yan Chengming, Sarah Bartlett, Marlo Wittenberg, Michael Baldwin, and Arnold B. Cabdriver. After the readings, we'll have a short discussion on the pieces. Our first piece is Frog Calls by Yuan Chengming. Yan Chengming edits Poetry Pacific with Alan Yan in Vancouver. Yan's credits include Pushcart nominations, Poetry Awards, as well as publications in Best of the Best Canadian Poetry 2008-2017 and Best New Poems Online, among others. Now here's Frog Calls by Yuan Chengming, read by Azalea McKetty. Frog Calls by Yuan Chengming The frog has stopped calling in the early light, but I still feel the sound waves surging towards my mind's shore, though different from the frogs my mother used to listen to when I must have heard deep inside her teenager womb as she walked at dusk from her first job in town back to her native village. Their calls separate us into two worlds, and my nostalgia is her nostalgia, echoing from generation to another, as loud as the song of the heart from the long-lost rice fields. Our next piece is Or Was It Not a Koi by Sarah Bartlett. Sarah Bartlett lives in Seattle, Washington. Her recent chapbook, Columbarium, was released in 2019 by Dancing Girl Press. Her recent work has appeared in Ratio, Pen American Poetry Series, Poetry Daily, Lit, Boog City, Alice Blue, and elsewhere. Now here's Or Was It Not a Koi by Sarah Bartlett, read by the author. Or Was It Not a Koi? Slow pearl body, a gleam underwater. Even the dog pauses to consider that you are alive. Now you are alive, moving in slow circles around the pond. And we are alive watching you in your ignorant beauty exist so hard the trees bend down. And elsewhere the ocean pulls itself toward your glow in the park's sink, where sickness is nowhere near your milky scales that gather light into some kind of celestial afterthought. And elsewhere, the pandemic blooms and rearranges our faces into ghost faces, and like ghosts, we float. Like you, we rise up through the night surface and disappear into new constellations. For our next piece, we have Garial, a riddle poem by Marlo Wittenberg. Marlo Wittenberg is an avid soccer player. He loves graphic novels and hopes to be a botanist someday. Now here's Garial, a riddle poem, written by Marlo Wittenberg, read by Azalea McKetty. Garial, a riddle poem, by Marlo Wittenberg. I have knobs on my narrow snout. I have over 100 teeth. I am the world's largest reptile. I am the closest living relative to the dinosaurs. I like to eat fish, small mammals, and frogs. I like to swim, crawl, and run. I live in deep rivers and sandbanks in India. I live my life through the night, sleeping during the day. I can mate underwater. 
I can puff out my neck. I am hunted for my skin and meat. I am turned into shoes, wallets, and souvenirs. There's only 200 left of me in the wild. I wish there were more. I miss my friends and family. Who am I? Notes. I picked the gharial because I like the saw shark and the reptile, and the gharial is a combination of them both. Plus, the gharial is huge. It can get up to 20 feet long and weigh up to 1,500 pounds. Over $2 billion worth of crocodile products are sold each year. I'm sad and mad because people are killing these gharials and other reptiles. Scientists are working with gharials in captivity to help them mate, so there will be more of them. I would like to join the Convention of International Trade on Endangered Species and the International Union for the Conservation of Nature to help protect them. Thank you to the helpful, knowledgeable staff at the Academy of Natural Science of Drexel University for the information I gathered on crocodiles, endangered animals, and our endangered planet. Next, we have the poem Golden Eyes by Michael Baldwin. Michael Baldwin is a native of Fort Worth, Texas, a retired library administrator and professor of American government. His poetry was featured on the National Radio Program. Mr. Baldwin resides in Benbrook, Texas. Now here's Golden Eyes, written by Michael Baldwin, read by Azalea McKetty. Golden Eyes by Michael Baldwin Toads are unlovely, plump, bumpy, gawkward, but I've been fond of them since I was young. Their inoffensive, comical dignity amused me. Gaze into a toad's lovely golden eyes, and you quickly become its friend. Why, then, did I shoot a toad in my backyard when, age twelve, I had invented a slingshot that propelled the sharp-ended rib of a broken umbrella like an arrow? What ancient hunter-killers abide within our genes, eager to emerge, to erase our innocence? Poor dumb creature, belly skewered by the tine, but no blood, no writhing, no squeal of pain. Its golden eyes gazed into mine and slowly blinked, as if unbelieving. I eased the rod from its body, placed the stoic toad near a fence corner, and slunk away. Next day, its golden eyes were gone to empty sockets, stiff corpse grotesque with dying agonies, stolid toadish dignity ravaged by red ants. I broke the slingshot and buried it with my friend. Nowadays, there are fewer toads than in my youth, decimated by pesticides, environmental degradation, casual cruelty— I did not tell my mother of the killing. She might have said its golden eyes were gods. Finally, to fin-ish our podcast, the short story A Small Group of Fishermen by Arnold B. Cabdriver. A Long Beach, Washington, not California, native, Cabdriver takes inspiration from the wildlife around him. Now here's A Small Group of Fishermen written by Arnold B. Cabdriver, read by Robert Eversman. A Small Group of Fishermen. A small group of fishermen tend to a dock. The fishermen know everything that goes on in our town. The fishermen sit around skinning fish and dwelling on Benjamin Carson. It's not right that a boy is born so awful, says the first fisherman, holding a knife in the eyes of a fish. The second fisherman, his hands as round as millens, is silent. The third fisherman says, I do not know whether he is worse or whether she is worse, having birthed him. Not far from the fisherman, a boy runs through the rain. He has told his school companions that in a terrible storm there are mermaids which come up shirtless from the sea. He is going to take one and do everything he wants with her. 
His companions run close behind him, their clothing soaked and looking more like second skin. They reach the dock, where it reeks like nets of fish. I'm going to put my willy into her, the boy says. If you do, says another, she'll yank it off. That's what mermaids do to sailors. The sea is a black-gray, as if the rain has beaten all of the green to the bottom. The boys strip naked. They are all going to put their willies into a mermaid. They jump into the water, their bodies invisible inside the thickness of the ocean, their heads like small lanterns in the unfathomable darkness. Fishermen deliver terrible things from the ocean, things which were never meant to be seen or eaten. But such is the nature of fishermen. The three fishermen stood very close to the door when Mrs. Carson opened after their pounding. They spilled immediately inside. He was caught in the rain. He has changed, they said, the immense storm behind them. The boy tries to jump from their arms. They rush with Miss Carson into the bathroom where she breaks open the bath. The fishermen lower Benjamin Carson into the water. He has turned purple around his eyes, his neck swollen. He flopped his legs in the bath and grabbed his mother. He tried to touch her, but had little control of his arms as his body was kicking and slamming to breathe. They did not want to hold her back, but he had struck her and her nose had begun to bleed. When the water closed over his mouth, Benjamin became calm. His eyes lost all blueness and became two black marbles. His hair drifted in the bathwater like weeds. His skin had begun to gleam. Two fishermen stayed stooped low beside the tub. The third stood and explained that Benjamin could no longer survive outside of water. He would have to be taken away. The fishermen took Ben in their arms. His skin had become more slick and his spine more flexible. It took all three to get Ben into the storm, but when he felt the rain he became calm again and lay draped in the first fisherman's arms. Two of Ben's comrades ran up to the fisherman. Is that Ben? Is he hurt? He will not be the same, the fisherman said. The boys stopped in the street. They wore bright yellow slickers, and as the boys faded under the storm, more neighbors came through. A crowd grew on their way to the harbor, then creaked onto the pier while the fisherman carried the boy to the edge. We know what it means, begins the first fisherman, for a boy to be taken. He regards the water seeping into Ben's neck. We know, begins the third fisherman, Ben Carson has disappointed us all. But see his calmness, see his eyes as he departs from us forever. The second fisherman turns to the crowd and shows them the boy. Seemingly he means by this, we will all meet our fate. We prayed for Benjamin Carson. The third fisherman turned to the edge of the pier and lowered Ben into the ocean. He sank at first like a waterlogged branch, down and down until he disappeared, until there was nothing, only rain, hitting the water. We crowded the fisherman. Could we have done anything different? Could we have stopped him somehow? But we could not move them. They hung their heads as deaf as rocks. It was then that the hands emerged, webbed and brilliantly glowing. Though now drawn back to the body, stunted and delicate, paddling lightly up. Then the creature broke the surface and regarded us from the fishermen to the comrades, but Benjamin's mother was not there. She sat alone in the house which she had shared with her son. I, the creature said, but could not say anything more. It swam away into the dark water, and over time the crowd dispersed. But when all had gone home, the fishermen stirred. A boat light clicked on, and their schooner rattled to life. They crept out from the harbor and lumbered out toward the ocean, 
lowering their nets. Joining me in discussion today are Deep Overstock's editors-in-chief, Mickey Collins and Robert Eversman. Hi, Zach. Thanks for having us. All right. Glad to be here. So, um, looking at these stories, let's talk about the different uses of these creatures and the water creatures in this short story. What do, what do you think about them? Uh, I love the we've got we've got we've got toads, we've got frogs, we've got fish, and we have a wonderfully terrifying reptile called the gharial. We have a very nice representation of these different kinds of water animals. They're all they all have little sad elements to them. For instance, in uh, Yuan Chongming's Frog Calls, there's a connection between generations. Uh, I think in Marlo Wittenberg's, we have something similar. He's calling to a animal which might go extinct and trying to have a connection between a human and this animal which will cease to exist soon. Um, so I, I feel a lot of attempted connection between the human realm and the animal realm, a lot of uh, fluidity. It is a fish episode. Yeah, I would say I definitely notice loneliness highlighted in every single one of these pieces, which kind of surprised me at first. I mean, even in like cab driver's piece, it's it's all about a town and a collective, but the main character in that one ends up in such a lonely place at the end. That's true. We have a small community and uh, someone, boy who... He's trying to go out on an adventure. Him and he and his friends jump into the water, and then because we're not really told why, but he's done something that has made him deserving of being transformed into a fish and effectively banished from his community. So we have a moment where the community comes together to mourn the loss of this boy, and then he finally goes off forever. Very lonely ending. Uh, speaking, you're talking about uh, this transformation into like this fish person. Uh, in cab driver's piece, I felt like in a lot of these pieces, we're talking about loneliness as a theme, but um, I also felt like there's a lot of a, uh, there's a theme of like transformation and a loss mm. of innocence in some of these as well. Uh, which I thought was kind of interesting with, you know, you know, amphibians, you know, going from like a tadpole to a frog is like a transformation just as, yeah, like kind of a amphibious aquatic animals and water, I guess is kind of used as a uh, metaphor for change. I feel like a lot of these stories dealt with kind of like a coming of age or like a loss of innocence. Too, yeah, Mickey, interesting. the loss of innocence. I want to ask you about Michael Baldwin's poem, Golden Eyes. Do you detect some loss of innocence in that one? Uh, yeah, definitely. Because uh, that's where he uh, kills a toad, right? Uh, yeah. With his slingshot, his invented slingshot. Uh, and it kind of sounds like it's like his first um, kind of interaction with death almost uh so yeah this first kind of understanding that he has the power to kill or power of life and death really came as like a coming of age loss of innocence really becoming older it's i mean it's a really kind of it's a really startling piece and i feel like it is a it does the same thing to, for me as as frog calls by yang ching ming but it kind of is like in a darker side of the nostalgia whereas hmm. frog calls is a little bit on the lighter side that's really interesting, interesting. Zach. what do you think what what's the nostalgia for you in um like you said the poem about the toad he kills the toad it's a darker nostalgia because he's remembering how fond he was of toads but also a terrible incident where he murdered a toad um in yuan chong ming's piece 
you see some nostalgia maybe for life with an earlier generation. What nostalgia are you picking up on? I mean, I think that's exactly it. I I think in Frog Calls, we're seeing the nostalgia of generations um, mm. and the nostalgia of like, of that connection to your past, even though like, even though the, the narrator in Frog Calls wasn't there to hear the frog calls, they, they were inside the, their mom's womb, right? Mm. Um, and so it's like almost that nostalgia or that longing for something that you actually didn't experience. Whereas in Golden Eyes, it's, it's kind of the reverse, right? Like it's, mm. he experienced this and he's almost hearkening back the nostalgia for like the moment beforehand, right? Like he had, he, I think he made this really cool slingshot and loved it. But like through the use of it, it it shifted from being a toy to a a weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, and like as as you guys said, I mean that major loss of innocence. Yeah, it is. It's interesting to note that how excited the narrator is about this new toy and toads at the same time, <laughs> and potentially thinking, is this interaction, is this kind of interaction going to work? Clearly, it does not. It ends in death. So it's a loss of innocence as far as, can I do this? Well, this is what this gets me. Yeah. And that, so that hits on, you hit on something else I noticed. In all of these stories, also, we see death as a recurring theme. Sometimes, like, very explicitly, as in the death of the toad. But, like, even uh, Bartlett's, or was it not a koi, which is, in some ways which I feel like is so far removed from death. Like it's, it's all about this tranquil, tranquil, peaceful moment. Um, and yet hidden in there, there's the talk of our current pandemic pandemic. Yeah. It even has the lines. You are alive. Now you are alive. Talking about being alive right now, seeing the koi, seeing the stars and seeing the way our faces have changed through the pandemic, there's there's this line, um, your milky scales that gather the light, sorry, there's a few lines, your milky scales that gather light into some kind of celestial afterthought, and elsewhere the pandemic blooms and rearranges our faces into ghost faces. It's very interesting to have um, what feels like people are being brought into this, and just our recent experience of I don't know what feels like, but kind of like losing a year or almost existing as a ghost for a year. Mm. I mean, and not to mention all the the real ghosts who have been made, that all the people who have been, who have passed away this year, right? Yeah. So even though this is like a very moving, tranquil piece, it it's kind of rooted in, and can't help but remind us of that loss and of that, of those deaths. Yeah, and all that loss is in our faces. One other thing I would like to talk about is the use of water in these pieces. Um, I mean, I feel like we're talking about fish and amphibians. We can't help but talk a little bit about water. Um, And I think there's two pieces that really highlight it. And one is Bartlett's Bartlett's, or Was It Not a Koi? And then the other one is Cab Driver's uh, Fisherman. And both use use water as as magic, but also as like as a greater threat, right? We see in Bartlett's mm. poem, we see the ocean pulling itself towards the koi pond, right? 
um, where as in cab drivers, we have the boys playing and looking for mermaids. And yet then we also have the fishermen pulling up these things that should never be eaten and should never be caught. (laughs) Boy fish. (laughs) Yeah. And then going out into the ocean to chase down the boy that they released. Mm, Yeah. Water as something that something comes out of and also something you can hide something in or throw something back into. And the thought that like the ocean has its own power and is almost an animal unto itself. Yeah, that line that you mentioned in Bartlett's poem, uh, where we have um, the trees bend down and elsewhere the ocean pulls itself towards your glow in the park's sink. Like you said, the ocean is actually pulling itself towards the, the very large ocean. It's pulling itself towards the very small fish. The structure-wise, too, we have a poem that I don't, a kind of poem I don't see very often by Marlo Wittenberg. It's a, a riddle poem, he calls it, and it's facts about a particular animal and then the question at the end who am i and it's an animal that um, this author is very fond of and um, interested in and sad to see it going into extinction and the the last three lines are the last four lines there's only 200 left of me in the wild and then in parentheses i wish there were more in parentheses again i miss my friends and family and then who am i and then more information about this animal that people might not know about this gharial, which is pretty cool looking. <laughs> it's like a Komodo dragon with spikes. Yeah, I mean, I, I really love this poem. I, it's a very smart poem. Mm-hmm. It's very, like, the the fact that it's a riddle is very catchy. But really what does it for me is those last two lines, as we mentioned. The, I wish there were more. I miss my friends and family. It just, I mean, it takes what what is kind of it takes this very scientific very kind of cold uh demarcation of fact and like twists it and kind of punches you in the gut with the emotion Mm, definitely yeah it's it's like a good counter not a counter but a, a different side or a different perspective or what am i trying to say different point of view from michael baldwin's piece where we have the human damaging the toad and reflecting on it and then we have the gharial being damaged by humans and reflecting on it itself. Well, Mickey, Bobby, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach. Thank you. This concludes Fish, Amphibians, and Reptiles, episode one of our special event celebrating the release of our 11th issue of Deep Overstock, Animals. We'll be back next week with our regular programming, featuring author Mark Savage reading and discussing Lucy by Elizabeth Neal with me, your host, Z.B. Wagman. And in two weeks, we will continue this look into Deep Overstock's Animal Kingdom with Episode 2, Fireflies, Beetles, and Diving Bugs. You've been listening to the Deep Overstock Fiction Podcast. Our theme music is the song Shibuya by Bad Snacks. Join us again next week, and don't forget to submit to our next issue, Mystery, before February 28th. Visit deepoverstock.com submissions for specific guidelines.